News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a new report, uh, you can find it and read more at globalnews.ca, is taking a look inside some luxury vacation rentals and allegations about rundown group homes. And joining us with more on what this investigation uncovered is Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Global News. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Jill, nice to speak with you. Uh, great to, to chat with you as well. Uh, some disturbing allegations and findings here. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Connor Holmes? Yeah, Connor Holmes is the name of an operator of private for-profit group homes and for quite some time also private for-profit foster care homes in Ontario. The provincial government in Ontario and in British Columbia allows profit to be a driver in some instances of care for kids in need, meaning it's not just a nonprofit or government-run scenario. Connor Homes was an example that we picked to delve into uh, close to a year ago, and we spent months investigating that company. What we found was that the company operates two businesses in tandem, this for-profit group home system where kids in need are placed in group homes, and on the side, they also have another business where they run luxury vacation rentals and waterfront properties. They've got an Africa-themed room. They've got um, luxurious places that you can go and even rent your own private island and stay there. Uh, meanwhile, these group homes that kids were living at um, had allegations of being run down. We obtained videos showing a ceiling collapsed in one of the bedrooms, that there were mouse droppings in drawers, that kids had to pile blankets under their sheets because their mattresses were so old and worn and Kids were complaining to the government that they didn't have enough food. And so it was quite a juxtaposition between the luxury on one side and what some say was despair on the other. And some of the conditions that this report talks about or shows, and as well that the headline that kids were called paychecks, I mean, they're just just horrifying allegations. Uh, Yeah, literally, we had workers tell us that kids were called paychecks to their faces. Uh, You know, in some group homes in Ontario, is in that every child who is placed in a group home or a foster care home that is private receives a per diem rate, meaning there's a price per day on every kid that's placed. And in some instances, this wasn't the case at Connor Homes, but in some instances elsewhere in a for-profit system, kids knew how much they would worth and some would even brag about that. Well, I know I'm worth this much, you're worth that much. And at Connor Homes, workers told us that kids would even say, uh, kids were even told to their faces by workers that they were just there as a paycheck, that money was the driver in the system. And and unfortunately, when money is a driver, some say care was not put at the forefront as it should have been. Uh, what kind of a response have you had then from uh, the people that run, or have you been able to, to get a response from the people that are running these group homes? Well, Dale, this is the first in a four-part series that's going to be airing every single night across the country on Global National and on globalnews.ca. The story is already live right now, and we've got a second substantive piece running on Wednesday. And even though the piece itself has only been live for three hours this morning, we've already been flooded with responses. We have been also to our early reporting on this topic. It's really, you know, um, touching a, a, a sore spot for many people who have been in the system and many people have strong feelings about, you know, much like in long-term care, as we had discussions, particularly in Ontario, about whether there should be a for-profit sector here. The same tone of discussions is coming up again here. Um, we tried to speak with the owners of Connor Homes as part of our reporting for this project, and they did not want to appear in camera. They did offer us written statements, which you will see included in our reporting. But, 
you know, we are hopeful that the government um, and people in positions of influence will be paying attention to our reporting so that kids can be put forced. Right, because, and you mentioned long-term care, and certainly this came up with long-term care as far as a lack of government inspections or a lack of government oversight. Is, is that what you found here as well? Well, you know, there is oversight. Is there enough oversight? Probably not, so say many people. And, and the nature of the oversight as exists right now is woefully inadequate, say others, in that it, homes know well in advance when the inspectors are coming. And so windows that have been boarded up for weeks, if not months, in some cases we were told only got fixed ahead of those inspections. We even obtained secret audio recordings of a staff meeting at Connor Homes where staff are being prepared for a ministry inspection. They know it's coming. They're being prepped for it. And questions that they should have easily known answers to, they didn't because staff say they didn't receive adequate training. And so they were put on the job with as little as know, three hours of training and an orientation. There you go, caring for um, highly vulnerable youth, sometimes with complex needs. Um, And so those inspections aren't capturing what's really happening on the ground, people told us. And that's a huge flaw in the system. Now, the government said, you know, we did 100 unannounced inspections in the last year. But, you know, with hundreds of homes across the province, that doesn't necessarily um, provide an adequate gauge for what life is like for these kids. All right. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, reading more about this uh, and, and learning more about what happened here. Carolyn, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Be well. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Let's take a look at how we are doing as far as the current wave of Omicron and why we, what we might continue to see as the summer progresses in this province, well, everywhere, really. According to some reports, we are seeing cases rise. Will there potentially be mandates brought back? Well, Dr. Brinder Narang joins us now, family physician, also co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign, also Global News CK W medical contributor. Dr. Narang, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Good morning. Good, thank you. Uh, what do we know as far as, as the numbers and, and where we are? Uh, here we are, uh, July 4th, uh, with the numbers as far as Omicron and whether or not uh, we're kind of in the midst of another wave. Sure. So the latest report from the BCCDC um, came out last week, and it just showed that um, there was an increase in hospital admissions in the last um, in the last week, and that was the first time that had happened in a while. But the total numbers in hospitals were staying stable. And, you know, when I look at um, the 30-day all-cause mortality numbers, um, that's actually almost a quarter of what it was at the beginning of the month. Now, we know hospital, uh, sorry, mortality can lag, but we have been seeing very low mortality here. So, yeah, we're looking at um, rising cases, and we know that the case numbers aren't um really too reliable anymore because most people don't have PCR testing, uh, but definitely it is in the community. In my own clinic, we had four of our uh, medical staff down in the last week, so it's definitely out there right now. And I think even anecdotally, when you talk to people, it seems like now everybody, uh, if they haven't had it themselves, you know somebody in your close circle uh, that has been exposed or, or has recently uh, had COVID and recovered from it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, myself, I had it about six weeks ago or so. And uh, yeah, so definitely um, I am asking people to keep an eye on their symptoms right now. And when we look at the the change that's happened around the world, we are seeing that now where a lot of the cases are um, likely being driven by the BA4 or 
um, BA5 variant, uh, which have been identified in the last few months. And what does that mean then as far as uh, people who have been vaccinated then uh, that have had, say, if we go for people who've had two or three shots uh, with these variants being dominated or dominating now, uh, does that change then as far as how efficient the vaccines are if we're dealing with these variants? Yeah, so we are seeing that uh, the BA4 and BA5 variants are um, showing properties of what we call immune evasion, which means um, prior immunity isn't um, necessarily as good as previously in preventing um, um, fr- um, you know, you from getting COVID. But what we have seen in the last couple of months is even in hospitalization numbers in BC, those who are unvaccinated, um, we're still getting hospitalized at two times the rate of those who were vaccinated. And um, in critical care, um, that it was about, they had a three times higher chance of um, being admitted to critical care if they were unvaccinated. So there definitely is still protection being afforded by the vaccines. When we look at how we're doing in BC overall, um, we're still at about only 55% um, of the entire eligible population that have gotten um, three doses. Um, and so there's still a lot of people out there who haven't been boosted. So I would recommend if they haven't, but they should get it. All right. And, and th- I was going to ask you as well, because I, I've seen people talking about the rules here uh, as far as the fourth shots and people in perhaps the older age group or the more vul- vulnerable. Um, if, we're, if we're seeing that, that number, though, of only 55% that have gotten the third dose, do you think it would make sense then open up the fourth shot to anybody who wants it in that there are going to be people in younger age groups or groups that aren't eligible right now that will go and get that? And isn't it, wouldn't it be a good idea then for anybody that wants it to get that protection out there? Yeah, so I think this is something that when I reflect back on on the recommendations that were uh, put out last week um, by NACI, which is a you know, national body that um, puts the recommendations out, they do recommend that um, people over the age of 65 and older, residents of long-term care, and those who do have underlying medical conditions that put them at higher risk for disease should be getting another booster before the fall or, you know, in time for the fall, expecting that um, as cases rise, um, you know, they're raising now, but we are expecting a fall wave, including that of other respiratory viruses, influenza, where we want to really make sure we're affording as much protection as possible. But also they did recommend that boosters may be offered to all of those between the ages of 12 and 64, regardless of how many boosters they may have had. So when I put that together, I think that, you know, it is on. Um, um, incumbent on um, our provincial government to give some clear recommendations on what patients can do now and what they should be doing towards the end of the summer, um, you know, as much as we can without using a crystal ball. Um, but we do need to have a bit of clarity. Also knowing that by the end of this month, we have a couple of hundred thousand doses that are going to potentially be thrown out. So I think, you know, if we've gone to so much effort procuring so many vaccines um, and there's no contingency plan on what to do with them, if takes expire, like, you know, give them to COVAX or somewhere else around the world, and then absolutely um, they should be um, given to people who want them. Oh, right. And, and Dr. Narang, just, just one other question, because that number, the 55%, it seems like if that's the number of people that are go- that got the third dose, you're probably not going to convince somebody who hasn't to do it now, especially since the, there's going to be a lot of people in the scenario where they got two doses and they've had COVID. So they're probably not going to line up to get a booster shot. So th- th- yeah, does it not make sense then just make them available for people who want them? Um, 
So I, I think I, I wouldn't want to overly uh, generalize, but yes, definitely people who have had it recently, uh, you know, as uh, in my day-to-day work, I have a lot of patients that come to me and ask me, well, you know, what should I do about my booster situation now because I did have COVID? And a lot of them will wait, um, you know, eight to 12 weeks after they've gotten it. And that's generally what we recommend, knowing that you do have um, another kind of um, boosted immunity in that time. But the problem is like, um, of just kind of opening it up um, is that there will be people who do misuse that as well. So there needs to be some type of, um, you know, kind of rhyme and reason to it. Also knowing that um, there's not necessarily going to be a boosted effect um, at protecting you from severe illness of hospitalization um, and severe disease by just, you know, continuing to chase uh, variants with boosters. What we want to be able to make sure we're doing is actually justify, justifiably using um, and rationally using boosters and seeing what is the impact on people individually and on our hospital systems. And I don't think that we have enough out there just to say, you know, as a free-for-all, everyone will get their boosters either. So there needs to be a bit of um, kind of risk analysis and benefit to patients that are thought about. And that's where I do hope that the government can give us um um, you know, in BC, some um, updated guidance. Also knowing that we haven't really had a report from the CDC that has told us, you know, um, lately on kind of what our uh, vaccine um, immunity has been doing or kind of effectiveness and, um, you know, impacts on things like long COVID, you know, stuff that we've been seeing around the world. So I hope that we could see some of that here as well. All right, Dr. Narang, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Appreciate it. No worries. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, we've spent a lot of time looking at the Broadway plan in Vancouver, certainly hearing from the public, those opposed, those for that plan. But there is another large housing development proposal that is getting some attention. This one proposed for the north end of the Granville Street Bridge. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, we have been spending so much time on the Broadway plan, but this is also a, a huge development proposal, and it's also getting kind of mixed review from the public. Can you talk a little bit about what is proposed for uh, the north end of the Granville Bridge? Yeah, I mean, I actually let your producer know that uh, because this um, particular project has been referred to public hearing, I can't comment on the merits or non-merits of the proposal um, because council has to keep an open mind on the decision, but I can say generally... Um, that it proposes um, in terms of taking down the gravel loops. It's an envision to use that land in order to provide additional housing in the city, and that is a combination of strata and rental housing. Um, and then I can certainly speak in terms of generally within the city, but I can't speak to the merits of this specific application. Sure, absolutely. But it is it is a large development proposal as far as, and for people to kind of visualize, it would be, from what I understand then, and we've talked about this, the, the decision to remove those loops was kind of done years ago. So getting rid of those traffic loops, and, and would it be the land we're talking about kind of where uh, there's a cab company right now and those kind of lots that would that would be under kind of the north end of the bridge? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a decision made by a prior council um, to open up this land through the removal of the loops. And uh, it is currently where a lot of people know where the blacktop taxi sits and uh, some of the other land underneath there that is uh, currently kind of um, taken up by the actual loop structure of the bridges. 
And if we go then from what we've seen, some of the the pushback against the Broadway plan or the questions about the Broadway plan has been, a lot of it has been focused on, uh, will there be adequate park space? Will there be adequate uh, childcare, schools, that kind of thing? Um, And again, not getting into the merits of whether this is a good plan or a bad plan, but how important is it that when we're talking about something of this size, that we are making sure there are schools, uh, there are parks, there are green spaces, and, uh, and there's a good mix? Uh, I think it's really important. This is one of the things that we're hearing the most about is this sort of notion of livability and maintaining um, that sense of amenities for people within their own neighborhoods. And that takes the form of green space, um, parks, community centers, libraries, making sure there's fire halls for servicing, all of those things um, that people rely upon and that um, help to create complete communities so they can enjoy them in their own neighborhoods. It's becoming an increasing challenge because the infrastructure in Vancouver is aging. It desperately needs renewal. Um, we identified, Council actually just approved our, recently our new four-year capital plan, and it's identified that our infrastructure is at the point that it's, uh, it needs so much investment that we have about a $500 million a year deficit gap. The new capital plan closes that gap to about $300 million a year. Um, but it is essential. The, one of the challenges that we have with funding public infrastructure as the housing types change is that developments such as Strata used to typically generate pretty solid what they call CACs or community amenity contributions that can be fun, used to fund these community benefits. Um, but now as we switch to different types of housing that people need because of the affordability issues, so we're trying to deliver more rental, you're trying to deliver more below market housing, more social housing, they don't generate those same contributions. Um, and so that's the challenge we have in front of us is how do you maintain the livability and the amenities? And one of the questions being asked about this as well, and I don't know if it's different because we're talking about in the downtown or the, the downtown part of the city, but uh, obviously whenever you're building in front of other towers, there's going to be an issue of views being blocked or shadows, that kind of thing. Do we do enough, do you think, to explore uh, types of buildings, say, more similar to Olympic Village as compared to going the route of making everything a big tower? Well, it's interesting because Council's had a few big conversations on our plate lately. You may have, as you noted, the Broadway plan was one. And Wednesday, we're actually discussing the Vancouver plan, which is really a conversation around what kind of density do we want in the city as a whole. And it actually contemplates things like multiplex or a three or four unit um, gentle infill density in neighborhoods across the city. Um, in addition to some of the traditional development we've seen in terms of putting density for towers. Um, And I think that's a response to the fact that people are looking for that variety and for those different types of housing. Um, So that's going to be an interesting conversation coming up at Council this Wednesday. And and how do you also deal with the type of housing? Like you said, in the past, stratas certainly and do continue to play a role, and especially when it comes to amenities. Uh, this particular area in Vancouver as well, uh, the, one of the hotels in that area was was converted to, to housing, to, to social-supported housing. Uh, this proposal also has uh, a mix of market rentals, uh, of, of strata, and uh, social housing as well. How do you find a mix that that just, that addresses the needs of the city, but also makes it livable and makes it so it is a workable and a good community? Well, I think the mix is really the most important thing. I think in terms of things like SRO units or those, um, those really affordable ones, there are policies in place to, um, in terms of replacement, one-for-one replacement on those to ensure that. Um, but more broadly, in terms of what you're speaking about for mix of housing, I think mixed communities... Um, 
actually build more interesting communities uh, and they build more connected communities. And we hear that from a lot of people that they like that diversity in their neighborhoods. So you want diversity of housing types, strata rental, et cetera, but also incomes that enable people to live there um, if they're, you know, they have different sort of um, situations in life, um, whether they uh, have more means or, or if they don't, um, you want to have both workforce and other people that are all having the chance to live in our distinct neighborhoods. And so creating that balance where I think you are mixing the tenure and the types of housing as opposed to kettling all of one type in specific areas makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and what about support systems, though? Because in that that area, specifically with the hotel that was converted, there were issues in that area. I know nearby buildings hired security. There there were issues, and and one of the question was questions was you can't just kind of plunk uh, a supportive housing unit without the support services. Does this plan? Do you think address that? I actually think I mean the Vancouver plan is really a land use plan um, and what you're speaking about really gets down into sort of the next level of planning which is around like you said making sure this is the appropriate type of support there I actually think we're at a real tipping point in how we deliver social housing um, and I think we need to have a more open transparent conversation around what supportive housing really means and to me it doesn't mean simply locating um, a substance use room uh, for people that have um, substance addictions on site or potentially referring them off-site to other services, I think we're getting into the area that we need more complex care where we actually start to build buildings that have medical services on-site um, and try to look at different models because clearly just putting people into rooms um, when they have complex needs, um, mental health addictions and other things, doesn't work. Um, and I think we're seeing that play out in different areas across the city, but um, it, I think it does require some political courage, political courage, I should say, to push that envelope around what supportive housing really looks like. All right. So we'll be watching uh, to see what happens uh, with the Vancouver plan and this uh, proposal as well uh, this week. Councillor Kirby Young, thanks as always for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great show. You, you too. Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor, talking again about this proposal for development at the north end of the Granville Bridge. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we know, the pandemic has been tough for a lot of in-person retailers. Many people turn to shopping online or more online. So who is it that opens a new business taking up real estate in this very expensive part of the country to sell low-priced items? Well, it's time to check in once again with our show contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, it was so sad to see so many businesses close in my neck of the woods, which is uh, in North Vancouver. I live around central Lonsdale. And when I would stroll the length of Lonsdale Avenue throughout the pandemic, it's like, gosh, every couple of weeks, I would notice another place had closed down. Some of them had been there for decades. There was like a chocolate shop that was there since 1995 that closed, a pastry shop, a florist. So many businesses had to shutter. And like you said, yeah, who could blame them? Because rents obviously are crazy high. People were continuing to shop online and then going to big box stores out of convenience too. But lo and behold, there have been some new establishments shopping up, uh, popping up and they are all kind of uh, niche oriented, which has made me think, wow, how are they doing it? And one of them is uh, this new store that's opened up on Lonsdale Avenue. It's called Lucky's Exotic Bodega. It's basically a glorified convenience store. So it sells snacks, but not just any snacks. It's hard to get snacks, rare snacks, nostalgia snacks. Like I saw a Hostess Twinkies, which I have not seen in a very long time. You know, Tootsie Rolls. There's an entire very colorful wall 
of limited edition sugar cereals like Fruity Pebbles and uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but like rare ones. Uh, it's a really fun place to be. Like there's packaging from the 60s and 80s and all of it just harkens back to nostalgia. And it's all curated. Uh, it's all meant to give off the vibe of the, the stories like nostalgia, childhood and youth. So they actually also sell something in addition to snacks that they feel ties into that. And that is shoes. They sell like really cool sneakers, but again, limited edition ones. So Lucky's Bodega in North Vancouver is owned and operated by three very longtime friends. One of them is Mario Prado. We specialize in exotic snacks from all across the world. We have the biggest selection in the city at the best prices in the city. It's our third location. We've been here for a month and a half. Our first location is on Hastings. We opened that one right by Playland up two years ago. Second location's on 41st and Night, right beside Duffin Donuts. We've been there for a year now. We have a big selection. We're still doing our renovations here in North Van, furnishing the place up. And uh, we'll have the rest of our stock here in terms of clothes that we ordered specifically for this store and the clothing, I mean the clothing and the sneakers. We've got a big sneaker collection coming, so. Okay, talk to me about these sneakers. Sure. Why do you have sneakers in a shop that sells snacks? Well, because we kind of wanted to put a spin on the uh, convenience store, right? Like, so the convenience store or bodega, it's like a local community thing. You just walk in, you kind of just like get what you need. But we kind of wanted to put a modern spin on it, especially for like the kids. A lot of us are into fashion. A lot of us are into snacks. So we kind of wanted to like fuse both worlds. So we're like a one-stop shop. Like you can get brand new sneakers or like stuff that's really hard to get or clothing. Let's say like Supreme or Babe. And... Um, get like a good snack at the same time <laughs> okay after the pandemic and during the pandemic so many people were closing up shop what made you think like okay no we need to start up a new shop something new we just knew that this was something no one had ever done in the city before and it was a niche that we kind of had the vision for and yeah so we thought first let's just do a convenience store and then it was like no let's let's make it a little bit more exciting more exclusive and then adding like the i would say like the flavor was like all the sneakers clothing funko pops just like we wanted to cater for everybody right so like the hypebeast which are, for us is not so much about making like huge numbers or profit and stuff it's about the community that's why we like strategically place our shops in like community driven areas because we just want to be a part of people's everyday life right like you know you get to know a person their life their kids Okay, in this day and age when like all these fad nutritional diets come up, how is a place that caters to like your sweet tooth yeah. doing so well? So I think one of the things about our store, we got a lot of nostalgic things, right? Like Dunkaroos, Gushers, uh, New York Seltzers, things that people grew up drinking or eating. And I've always said that like, you can't put a price on nostalgia because people will pay anything to feel like a kid again. So true, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, yes. I remember, I remember these. What the, what the heck is this? Those are candles. So hostess scented candles, Starbucks, Starburst candles, Skittles candles. Oh my gosh, what are these? <laughs> the hostess cupcakes. Yes, those are really good. So a lot of these are, are sourced from the USA. We have a lot of American products, uh, products from Mexico, Hawaii, uh, all over Europe, uh, Brazil. Wow. So, yes. How hard is it to source everything? Not that hard anymore. We got a lot of good friends. <laughs> We're here for the long run, you know? Like, yeah. we got, we have a big, a big dreams and like a big vision. So, I think we're going to be here for a long time. As long as the community wants us here, we'll be here because we're constantly like upgrading our menu. We're constantly like 
doing new stuff, new cool things, like keeping it like fresh and and, and different. We like to stand out. Um, so yeah, we've been doing well in the other uh, community, so we're happy to be around here as well. And we're here for a while, and you know, we're just expanding little by little. Hmm. So, Raji, how big is that store? You know, Jill, it's not that big. It's just like a, it feels like a convenience store right when you walk in, but it is so colorful. It was bumping when I went in. They're open from 9 a.m. until midnight. And I was there in the evening and lots of people were coming in. What was really incredible though to witness is that when people would walk in, their eyes would go wide and they would just look from left to right, up and down. And there was this sense of just overwhelm, but also the whole saying, kid in a candy store. I mean, you really got that from everybody that came inside. People came in with their dogs, their kids, and it was uh, such a range of people too. And it was like entertaining to watch people shop because they just kept constantly going, oh, look at this and remember that. And, you know, picking up their favorite thing from literally their childhood. I saw saw candies and snacks and chips in this little convenience store uh, that I haven't seen in ages in decades really and so it was it was an entertaining treat to be in there too wow so just really playing off of nostalgia like you said and taking people back things that you maybe had totally forgotten about yeah, and there was a lot of things that I have never myself tried, but I've uh, I noticed the packaging, and I remember the packaging being around. Like there were things from the fifties and sixties that I remember seeing when I was a kid in the nineties and late eighties, and so it harkened me back to that time too. So I think that a place like this, uh, you know, will continue to be successful because they did go niche. It's uh, those places these days that try to cater. I think you know, opening a brand new business that. Cater- to everybody and anybody doesn't fly so much as being a destination spot. Like I could tell that the folks that uh, had walked in from off the street when I was there, that they had heard a little bit about this. They'd heard the buzz on the street and uh, came to check out the hype. All right. So I'm sure a lot of people will continue doing that. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Jill.